Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Morning, church. My name is Dave, and I'm going to be reading uh, the scripture today. Uh, I'll be reading Revelations 21, 1 to 8. Uh, You can follow along on the screen or in your bulletin. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the adulterers and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of God. Thanks, Dave. Morning, Upper Room. How y'all doing? We made it eight weeks. So you're like, was anyone here for eight weeks? Anyone made the whole eight weeks, the whole series? Bravo. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well, hey, if you're just joining us, we've been in this uh, awesome series called Beyond Just Belief. And we've been talking about what is it that Christians believe at the core? And we kind of have eight subjects that we picked out of all the scriptures and just said, you know, thematically, these are the things that we kind of find that at core of our beliefs. And then what does it mean to not just believe those things, but actually live out of those beliefs? So it's been a really fun journey. We're at the end today. I don't know about you, but I feel like the end always tells you how good something is, right? Like, you know, when you're like watching this awesome movie and the end sucks, was the movie good or bad? Bad, exactly, right? You're like, oh, the movie sucked. No, it was the awesome graphics and awesome this and awesome that, but the end was just terrible. It sucks. Or same with books. My wife, she won't even read a book until she can flip to the last page and just see, okay, this is, I can handle this. So then she'll then read the book because she knows she's not going to be disappointed in the end, right? Because the end always dictates or tells us what's to come and that always helps us understand what's going on. And so today what we're doing is we're actually looking at what is it that Christians believe the end of the story is. And so that doesn't just mean what does the the last page in the Bible say, but what does it say about our lives? What does it say about the end? What does it say about what happens, maybe the question you've been asking or not asking or avoiding, which is what happens after we die? At the end, is there something there? And it's interesting because I talk to people all the time and I discover there's all different kinds of answers. In fact, a friend of mine was at a conference yesterday and uh, there was a youth leader who was kind of talking and he said, you know, I was curious to see, so I, I pulled all my students in my youth group at my church. And he said, so I gave them all a piece of paper and I said, if you had seven days before you were going to die and go and, you know, be with Jesus, what would you do in those seven days? And he was kind of expecting like every, you know, pastor that, you know, people just love Jesus so much and they were going to write, we'd tell all our friends about Jesus so we could be in heaven with them. Instead, he kind of started reading all the answers of the kids, and it was pretty much like, we'd get married really quick and have lots of sex. And he was kind of like, 
oh, I suck as a pastor, right? Like, he just had that moment, right? But it, really, he kind of dug a little deeper, dug a little deeper, and as he talked and he talked and he talked, he kind of discovered what they were saying ultimately was, if we only have seven days to live, we're going to live it up. And we are going to squeeze every ounce of joy out of this world because after that, we're going to be floating on clouds, eating cream cheese, and playing harps. And it just sounds weird. And if you think about it, it's like, that's, that's probably a lot of people's reality, even Christians, and I'll be honest, on the pastor. And the idea of heaven is kind of disconcerting to me, right? It sounds like this never-ending church service. Okay, and I love church services, but I can't sit still. It's probably why I preach, right? So I have, like, the reason to do this, because if I'm sitting in the crowd, kind of just, you know, people are like, what's wrong with that guy, right? Like, so, like, I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. Like, oh, it'd be so great. Endless praises. And I'm like, doesn't sound so, I mean, I think it would get boring. I think I'd learn all the words to the songs, and, you know, I just, it'd be like too many replays. Like, I just, it doesn't excite me, the idea of what I grew up with, with this image of heaven. And there's other people that you talk to, maybe not even Christian people, but they're just like, is there something after? And, you know, I, I've been telling you kind of some of the awkward and fun conversations I have with people when they find out I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, you know, they kind of spill their life out or, you know, hey, what about this? And, and so one of them is like, okay, so, hey, this one time I smoked this stuff or like I drank this or, you know, I slept with this person or I did this or I had this opportunity and I didn't do it. You know, this one time I lied. Okay, you know, maybe, maybe a, a couple times. Okay, I'm lying right now. I lie all the time, you know, or I really want to get a tattoo. Does that mean I'm going to go to hell? My mom said I'm going to go to hell if I do these things, right? It's just like in the moment I kind of want to be like, I hope not because I really want like a full sleeve. Like I think that would be awesome. I'm just waiting for a bigger canvas. But anyways, well, it's just like this, this idea is just like, like what is it I need to do? because I'm not sure what's after, but if there's something after, you know, I kind of want to go not, you know what I'm saying, right? Like, I just want to make sure I have my plans, my travel plans all arranged and figured out. Pastor, can you help me out? Because there's something about our beliefs about the future that impact the present, isn't it? That as we kind of, you know, pause and just think about it, the reality is, is that when we're asking questions about the future, it's because we know that what we believe about the future always impacts the present, in fact, when I'm in those conversations, I kind of try and steer the conversation away from hell, not because I don't believe in hell, not because Jesus didn't talk about it. In fact, Jesus talked a lot about hell. But the interesting thing is he didn't use it like a gun to someone's head saying turn or burn, as we often see it used. In fact, almost every implication of Jesus talking about hell, he's talking to religious people who are hypocrites, and he's warning them about something. And so I try to move the conversation away from there because it's not the tool that Jesus used to talk to people. He talked way more to those people about a new kingdom, a new creation. And that's our topic for today. The end of what we believe comes at the end. Which is a fascinating topic because since the creation of the world and since we kind of have literature going back thousands of years, even philosophers like Plato, they say things like what we believe about the future impacts the present. And Plato said especially what you believe about death. What you believe about death is impacting the way you live today whether you realize it or not. You see, because every single one of us are motivated by hope. One of my favorite authors has this great story to kind of illustrate this. He says, if you take two guys and you put them in a warehouse and you tell them, hey, here's the job that you need to do. Take item A, attach it to item B, put it on the assembly line. And do that eight hours a day, five days a week. And at the end of the year, you tell them the one guy is going to get $10,000 and the other guy is going to get $20 million. Okay, you just, same job. They don't know what the other guy's getting paid. You just kind of imagine they're kind of, you know, on opposite assembly lines. And the guy who's getting paid $10,000 at the end of the year is just kind of like, ugh. Uh, you know, a week, two weeks in, just like, I can't take it anymore. And the other guys there, $20 million at the end of the year, just kind of whistling away, like, really? It's not that bad. I don't see the problem. There's a reality where what they believe about the future impacts the thing that they're doing, even though they're doing the exact same thing. Because one person has hope, and the other person doesn't. 
that to say that hope doesn't impact our lives would be totally misunderstanding the way that humans work. Do you know this? That you know that there are times at work where you found out there was a promotion to be had, and all of a sudden you hustled a little bit more. That there are times where you got into your car and your spouse looked at you and said, why do we continue to try and have a relationship with your family? And you, you know, gave some sad excuse, but really you're like, because I don't want to get written out of the will. It's amazing the things that we will endure when we believe that there's something at the end. You know, some of you endured years and years of education because you believed that it was going to pay off financially and status-wise. That what we do is always driven by what we believe the future holds. And there are times where we drop out of jobs or drop out of relationships because of what we believe the future holds. And it doesn't excite us and it doesn't draw us and it doesn't give us hope. That we're hope-based creatures and we're hope-driven creatures at the core of our being. It's the one thing that we have in common. And so even if you don't believe anything about life after death, that drives you. You can be an atheist who says, you know, after you die, I think we just, we just kind of rot in the ground and there's nothing in this life. That actually leads to different ways you live it out. I've seen, you know, at least two. One of them is kind of this, like, Drake, YOLO, you only live once, so you just live it up right now because you don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. That kind of impacts it. Other people I've met, it's like, I don't think there's anything after this world. We only have one chance to live, and they're paralyzed by fear. Because, like, well, if I, if I date him and it doesn't work out and then I've wasted time or if I get this job and what if I don't like it? And they're just, they're paralyzed. Like, I only have one life. It's amazing how that hope can impact people in different ways, but it does impact them. You think of different world religions and the different views about what's after and it impacts people. People who believe in karma and reincarnation live in a certain way so that when they get reincarnated, they get a better life and not a worse one. Some people have views about the afterlife and they just think, I'm not sure what's out there, I'm not sure what God, but if I just have my good outweighing my bad, that impacts the way you live life. You often tolerate things you would never tolerate simply because you think it's getting you check marks and bonus points. That what you believe about the future, even if you ultimately believe there's nothing in the future, impacts every single day and every breath that you take and how you choose to live it. That today at the end of the series, what we're going to try and figure out is what is it that the Christians hope for. Because so often the view is kind of like this. The world is evil, heaven is our home, and we even have songs like this, and we're just passing on through, right? It's like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and if we just keep our head down and keep following Jesus, somehow we're going to get entered into the pearly gates. And somehow that's our view of the world, and today what we're going to discover is that that's actually not the hope that we have. And in fact, if you're not a church person, you're not a Christian, you're kind of here, and you're like, I'm, I'm not sure. Here's, here's the reason, here's maybe the thesis statement why I think that you should pay attention. Because here's what I truthfully believe about the end of the story. When people get a clear understanding of the Christian hope, they live fully alive and engage with the world, and the world takes notice. That when people get a clear understanding of Christian hope, they live fully alive and engaged, and the world takes notice. I know that because when I look at history, I see a group of people thousands of years ago who engaged full and wholeheartedly with the world that they were involved in. And it wasn't a world that was easy to be a Christian. In fact, if you know anything about Christian history, if you know anything about the early church, BJ mentioned it in his prayer, the early Christians, the first century, it was a terrible time to be a Christian. There were tons of emperors that came and went and tons of people that persecuted Christians and killed Christians. You've heard of Nero's circus. They didn't have you know, modern ways of lighting their circuses, so they literally kebobbed Christians and lit them on fire and let that be their entertainment as they ran around in their little circus. That Christianity was something that was very, very hard to stick to because people People were literally being killed for it. 
And yet, these people didn't run and hide and say, one day God's going to get rid of all this and save us for heaven. But somehow, they fully engaged with the world that they were in. In fact, if you look at history, you'll be blown away. And historians look at it and they're like, we don't understand why they continued because so often people get persecuted and they scatter and yet the Christians got more and more engaged. In fact, there are times where we've actually discovered Roman letters going back and forth. There was a plague in the first century and, uh, and the Romans were just terrified because everyone was dying. Thousands, countless people died. And the Romans were literally taking their sick and throwing them out in the street. And the Christians came along and took care of them. And they have letters of Romans writing to other ones and saying, we should be ashamed. Like, they're making us look bad. We throw our sick people out. They take them in. There's another story. I love this one. I think I shared it a few years ago. It's probably on the podcast, a message called The Church. And uh, it, was, it was Pliny the Younger. You, you can Google this. Fact check me, okay? And Pliny the Younger, he's like a guy who was pretty much hired by an emperor to be an investigator looking into Christians. And he'd interrogate them three times. And if by the third time they hadn't said that, no, never mind, we're not Christians anymore, he had them killed. And we actually have a letter from Pliny the Younger writing to the emperor, and this is my, you know, my short form, but here's basically what he said. Excuse me, Mr. Emperor, do you know what these Christians do? Like, I find out when I interrogate them. They get up early, they worship God, they worship a resurrected Savior, and then they promise each other they're going to love their enemies. And it's almost like he's writing to the emperor and saying, are you sure we should be killing these people? Because I feel like we could use a few more. You see what happened? That somehow these early Christians believed something about their future, that they engaged fully in the present world that they were in. The first mental health care was actually created by Christians. In fact, there was a saying going around, Tertullian, one of, the, uh, um, one of the writers in history that we have, he actually said, you know, one of the sayings going around is the blood of Christians is like seeds. That every time you kill a Christian, more and more Christians pop up. It's like people were watching and they're like, there's something about the way that these people live and even the way in which they die, the hope that which they have, and people were drawn to it. And they became followers of Jesus as well. Bottom line is that they believed something that left them fully engaged with humanity that they were surrounded with. They had a living hope. You say, okay, so what was that hope? Was the hope that they believed that if they would engage with the world and do some really great things that one day they'd get to go to heaven? Nope. In fact, do you know this? That for the first 150 years of church history, nobody believed that anybody was going to heaven. They didn't. It wasn't their motivating factor that one day they'd be free from this world as long as all the things that they did would add up. That wasn't even a belief. They didn't even believe that was a place to go. It wasn't what they believed at all. And yet they didn't run. They didn't hide. They didn't protect their kids. They didn't just sit back and say, we're waiting to go to heaven because they did not believe that at all. So what is it exactly that they were hoping for? What was it that they believed? What is it that they understood? So today what I want to do is I want to lay that out for you a little bit. So if you have a Bible, would you uh, turn to the book of Revelation chapter 21? Revelation 21, really easy to find. Back your Bible or flip there on your device. That's totally cool. Love for you to be able to read with it and, and highlight some of the parts that stand out to you. So go ahead, Revelation 21. Revelation is written by a man named John. Um, he's exiled in the Isle of Patmos and he just had this vision. And so he's kind of writing this vision. He's written to churches who are going through a lot of this suffering. It's written right around the time where they're just having horrible, horrible times. He's kind of writing this hope to say, hey, keep going. And here's kind of an image of what the future holds. And this is kind of the thing that motivated them to live the way in which the world took notice. 
Lots of imagery, uh, and I know there's so much written about kind of heaven, new creation in the scriptures, so we're going to stick to this one passage. I'll use a few passages to kind of just highlight and reemphasize certain things, but just we're taking one of the many uh, images in the scriptures and kind of zeroing in on it. So Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Okay, first thing you kind of, I don't know if there's things that kind of jump out to you. First thing that jumps out to me is like, new heaven? What was wrong with the old one? You know, I, like heaven's perfect. Like, why did we need to remake that thing? Like, what's going on here? Like, why is it a new one? And we'll get to that. And then the next thing that kind of catches me is there's a new earth. Which you're kind of like, okay, wait, 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 wait. One day we're, aren't we like, we're going to heaven? Like, it's almost like, you know, when your pants don't fit anymore and you're going to just throw them out. But you're like, let me just get them dry cleaned before I throw them out. You ever, it's like, what's the point? Right? So it's like, throw them out. They're not, they don't work anymore. They're ripped. Like, what's the point? Same thing with earth. It's like, we're done with earth. Now we're going to heaven. So why is there a new heaven and a new earth? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pause. I want you to forget everything that you've ever understood about heaven because most of it you learned from Disney and Bruce Almighty. Okay? We have all, it's amazing. It's incredible how much stuff people in history have been like, isn't this what hell's like? It's like, no, that's from Dante's Inferno, but it's not in the Bible, right? Like, it's incredible to see how much culture has shaped our view of the afterlife, but when you actually just say, okay, I'm gonna like men in black, flashy thing my memory, and just go right back to just not knowing anything, and start from there, and all of a sudden you're like, hey, new heaven, not quite sure, new earth. Okay, that's, that's interesting, because as it kind of put on the screen, kind of different ideas come to mind. New what does new mean? It means wonderfully different. You ever had a new car? You know, and you just kind of get in the car and you're looking for the little, and it's like, oh, there's a button for that. You know, or it's really hot one day and you're thinking you're going to use 460 air conditioning, you know, four windows, 60 kilometers an hour, and then it's just like, oh, there's a button for that, right? Like, you just, you just press the button. It's just like, new is wonderfully different, right? Is it so, if someone offers you, like, the new one or the old one, you take the new one every single time. And so this idea of something being new is kind of cool, but this is new earth. Earth is something that's strangely familiar, as we kind of see on the screen, right? Earth is something, I mean, where were you born? Earth. Where'd you grow up? All of us have that in common. Earth. Where'd you wake up this morning? Earth. It's like, oh, that's strangely familiar. And you know why that's such an intriguing idea when it says new earth? Because if I'm honest, I like earth a lot. I like it so much here. I love going swimming. I love laying out in the sun. I love being in relationship with people and hanging out. I love the diversity of the GTA. Isn't it awesome? Like, I actually like Earth. I love the fact that we can eat amazing food, and I pretty much can get all the food in the world in this wonderful city. I love the, all the different things that are going on here. I love music. I love dancing. I even love Pinterest, but don't tell anyone that, okay? I just love everything that this world has to offer. And if I pause, though, I'm like, okay, but there's also things I don't love. I don't love the weather some days. I don't like the cold. I don't like relational tension. I mean, I love relationship, but man, it just feels like if you're going to love someone, you're going to be in for some heartache. I don't love physical pain. I don't love having to go for surgery. I don't love death. There's a lot of things I don't love. And so when someone says new earth, all of a sudden I'm just drawn in a little bit because I think new, wonderfully different, earth, strangely familiar, and that's a good thing because I love I love, I love the earth that we live in. All of a sudden, that idea, and we forget everything else we know about new creation, new earth, kind of resonates, kind of draws in. It doesn't sound so unknown. It doesn't sound airy-fairy, floating on clouds, playing harps, right? Like, it just sounds like, ah, new earth. That's something that resonates with me. Then he continues. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Notice, notice what's happening. We're not going 
to heaven. Something's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them and be their God. First thing that you discover when you forget all the things you've ever believed, and you start just reading the scriptures with a blank slate, is that heaven is not so much a place. You kind of read all the metaphors, and you kind of realize, okay, I, I see how I kind of started believing that. But heaven's not a place. I don't know if any of you were around in the 1960s. Anyone like around, you can be honest, 1960s, be proud of that. Okay, and now, if you were like actually conscious, not like born in 1969, okay? Like you were actually conscious in the 60s. Let's see a few hands. Amazing, okay, which means you're probably unconscious in the 70s, right? Like, but so, conscious in the 60s, you remember a name, uh, Yuri Gagarin. Anyone remember Yuri Gagarin? Yeah, okay, what did Yuri Gagarin do? First man in space, okay? And there's a famous quote that's credited to him, and we don't know if it was actually him, but he said something that kind of stuck with people. You know, he came back, and he's just like, so I was out there, I was out in the heavens, and I didn't see, I didn't see God. And it's this kind of idea that we have, and I think it's Disney more than anything. It's just like, it's just like if we could just get high enough, if we could just get past the clouds, all of a sudden we might bump into God, right? Now we're, you know, modern day flying, just like your pilot comes on. And if you look to the left, you see God, right? Like, it's just like this idea that he's up there, and if we could just get high enough, we'd all of a sudden be in heaven. But what you discover when you open up the scriptures is not so much this place as heaven is the place where God's presence is fully manifest. That it's not up there. Every time it seems to be that you know, someone goes into heaven or sees heaven, it's like this new dimension is revealed where God's presence is fully present and manifest. That is what, God, that is what this idea of heaven is all throughout the scriptures. And so when, when it says that heaven comes down, what it's saying is that God's presence is fully and finally coming to earth. It says God's dwelling place. It says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them and be their God. That all of a sudden, this is the bookend to the story. Remember how it started? Creation, Adam and Eve, God walking in the world and in the earth. What did they do? They chose to move away from him. They broke relationship with him and he moved away. And now he's coming back and he's making the whole creation new. God's presence is now amongst his people. You see, this whole idea of getting rid of the world and moving up to heaven, most makes it sound like the world is broken, but remember when God created the world, what did he keep saying over and over and over again? This is good. This is good. This is real good. The problem is not global warming. The problem is not acid rain. The problem is not the temperature in the city that you live in. The problem is a broken relationship with our Heavenly Father. And that's the thing that gets restored in new creation in heaven in the kingdom of God, that he actually comes and dwells with his people. That our life-giving source is finally present with us again. And then it tells us some word pictures of what it's like when God comes down. It says it's like this city coming down to earth. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. When God joins the world with full force, there's no longer death, pain, or mourning but because the old order has passed away. The old order of the world being ruled by people with a sinful nature, with a gravitational pull towards themselves, is gone. The times where the rich, the powerful, the corrupt, the liars, and the cheaters rule the world is completely over. God is now ruling on his throne on earth. He's taken back 
the reins. And it gives us all this imagery of what it is like in this new creation, in this new world. It says, first of all, it's a massive city, one city. Not many cities, not with borders and walls. It's just one big old city. And if you take the, the, the count, literally, it's probably the size of about three quarters the size of the United States. Just imagine one city that big, every tribe, nation, people, language, all together in one place, and nobody's fighting, nobody's killing, nobody's crying. There is perfect peace. There's no more brokenness. Sin is gone. God is ruling, and it's beautiful. It's wonderfully different, and yet strangely familiar. You keep reading all the images of, of the new creation in the scriptures, you discover that there's real bodies. We're real people. There's real good food there. There's good drink. There's dancing, and there's just beautiful creation. There's physical space. We have relationships. We do get to work. It's just not bad. You know, remember, work got tainted by the fall. Now we get to actually work. I love that idea. That the richness of human culture, without the brokenness when we have a broken relationship with God, is what we see in the new creation. Some other images, it says, is there no temple in this new city? You don't need to go to a place to connect with your creator. It actually says he is there with the people. There's no more barriers. It says there's no sun. Not because, you know, there's not going to be any tanning in heaven. It says because God is actually all the light that you will need. The sun represents warmth and it represents life. Without the sun, we die. It says, no, no, no. I'm all the warmth and I am all the life that you will ever need in heaven. Some of the other images are gold streets. Are they actually gold? I don't know. I think what it is symbolizing is the fact that nothing ever rusts, ever decays. What is gold? It's pure. It's perfect. It doesn't wear out ever. It says there's no sea. I was kind of sad when I read that because I love going to the beach. But, you know, Vijay has helped me understand. He's like, no, 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 no. It's not about the sea. Like, there's no water. And who knows what it's actually going to be like. What it was saying to a people in a culture that often lost family at sea is there's no more mystery to where your family is going. There's no more danger in that kind of way because the sea was this terrifying, mysterious thing. It's like, there's no more sea. No more sea. It was written to that culture, and it's just saying there's no more sea. And it says that the gates of the city are actually open all the time. You know what city keeps their gates open? Cities that have no fear. Cities that are entirely safe, that there's absolutely no threats in this new creation. At the end of the imagery, it says this, those who are victorious will enter, uh, inherit all this. I will be their God, they will be my children. At the end, the new creation is wonderfully different and strangely familiar. Then it continues. It's a little interesting. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Kind of like, I'm so glad I didn't invite a friend today. You know, you just kind of read that and you're just like, oh, like you had me with new earth, new creation. And now you're telling me people are getting sent to some lake of sulfur and burning up? Like, what's that about? Like, it just gets so intense. And the reality is, is that, as I said before, Jesus talked a lot about this place called hell. You cannot read the scriptures without discovering that there seems to be a second option or a second trajectory that we may be on in our lives. There's lots of debate, you know, what is it like and does it keep going forever or is it just, you know, you just burn up? Like, what, what happens there and how bad is it and are you, you know, aware of all the pain? There's all these kind of questions about what's going on. And I think when we talk that way, we miss the point of what the literature is trying to do. You see, over and over and over again, when the images of hell are painted, they're juxtaposing or showing us how to measure up against heaven. 
You see, we kind of read the images of hell like a travel brochure, right? Like, ah, could I go there? You know, would it be so bad? You know, what if my friends were there? Could they make the bad vacation spot a little bit better? Like, we're doing all this stuff, and what should I pack? What should I wear? And all, like, we're just kind of figuring out, like, do I want to go? And we completely miss the idea that when you engage the scriptures, you discover something's very clear. That this new creation, the kingdom of God, all the imagery is leading you to one place. It's saying, you have to see it. You don't want to miss it. Everything you crave for, everything you long with, all the brokenness missing is exactly what it is. And every image about hell is saying, do not even go near it. You don't want to have anything to do with it. To which you kind of pause, you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I can believe in a God who sends people to hell. And I just kind of pause and I'm like, hey, listen. I resonate with you. Like these images, like they've honestly, when I was a kid, I used to read this stuff. They, you know, Sunday school back then in the 90s, they just read this stuff to the kids, terrify them, right? I'm just lying in bed like, ah, right? It's terrifying. Can we just be honest with that? It's terrifying. And yet the more I understand the scriptures and the more I understand as I kind of look at the big picture, 30,000 foot view, I'm discovered of an entirely different narrative. Then we often think it's like God, you know, up in heaven and he's there and everyone's there and he's just like, ha ha, he just opens up a pit and surprises them and throws them into hell and they're trying to claw out. And he's like, no, never. It's like, that's not the story you find at all in scripture. That if you think that God is sending people to hell, you've never actually engaged the scriptures and understood the story because from the moment that humans choose to move away from God, the entire narrative of scripture is God moving and fighting and fiercely loving humans to try and be back in a relationship with them, but he will not force himself. And he over and over and over again says, this is what life is like without me. You want a godless existence? If I am life, it is death. If I am community, it is loneliness. Why would you even try and just measure up this image of hell and do I want to go there? He's saying, no, you don't want to go there. I so badly want to be in relationship with you. And this is what it's like to be in relationship with me. I am a life-giving source and it is incredible. I will fix this entire world. And yet he still does not force himself on us. He says, if you want to be without me, you can be. That place is called hell and you're so... Welcome to choose it. I don't want it. In fact, I sent my son to the earth to die for you so you wouldn't have to go there. But if you think that God's sending people to hell, you've misread the entire scriptures. People choose to not be in relationship with him. They actually choose that. And all of a sudden you realize it's actually kind of refreshing that God talks about it a lot because isn't it true? There's so many times in your life where you just felt like someone should have told me. You ever have that when you're now raising kids or you see other people raising kids or, you know, you don't have some of your own, but you just want to warn them, hey, hey, don't smoke this, don't drink this, don't do this. Listen, they didn't tell you this, they don't say this in the advertising, but it'll mess you up. No, we so badly want to just clarify, hey, this is the trajectory in which you're going. God's like, it's never a mystery with me. I've made it clear from the beginning. It is so clear. You need to be in a relationship with me because I am the life-giving source. And at the end of all time, it will be new creation. And all those who have followed me will be with me in it to enjoy it and delight in it forever. It'll be wonderfully different and strangely familiar. So what does it mean to actually believe this? To actually go beyond the beliefs and actually live this out? Because if you're honest, if I'm honest, most days, if we look at our lives, it probably doesn't reflect this belief. That we probably aren't motivated by this hope. In fact, we're probably like those teenagers, just trying to squeeze every ounce of life in the moment. Kind of look at the way we spend our finances, the way I spend my money, my time, the relationships that I'm invested in, how I panic when things aren't going so well. And I probably think, I don't know if I actually believe that I have a living hope that one day our God is going to unite us with himself in this new kingdom, this new city, this vibrant place. 
What would it look like if we actually believed this? I think we'd cling to life a little bit less than the things that this world has to offer. I think we wouldn't live so much in fear. I don't think we'd try and manufacture hope. I don't think we'd try and claw at things and try and squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of things and panic when we lose money or time or relationships. See, because the first Christians in the first century didn't believe that they were going to one day die and go to this airy-fairy place that just seemed weird. They believed that earth was their home and that God was going to make it new. That they lived fully alive, fully engaged, and the world took notice because they had a living hope. They loved their enemies. They served the poor, the marginalized. They were at peace, having little control, even to the point of death. Imagine what it would look like if the church lived with this kind of hope today. If we, the body of Christ, as Vijay was saying, lived this out in the world that we lived in. Not head down, trying to stay away, don't want to be corrupted by the world, but saying, no, this world is God's world, and he's making it new, and I want to be a part of it. I want to give my life for it. Here's the bottom line question. Do we get it, and do we live it? Do we get it, and do we live it? If we truly get it, the instant we fully get this, we say, God, I don't want to live another day out of relationship with you. Some of you that you're here today, you know, you kind of started off the series and you're like, okay, they said I could just kind of, you know, listen to this whole course and kind of just, you know, stay from a distance. Now you understand it. You understand the whole story of human history. It resonates with the core of your being saying something's wrong. I so desire a relationship. I can't seem to find it. It's always broken. And now you kind of discover this is what happened. This is what sin is. This is what God did to make us better. Will you accept this gift? Will you respond to it? Do you believe it? Will you actually say, Jesus, I want you to lead my life. I want you to be Lord of it. I so badly want the rest of my days on this world to be living in response to your love. That is the thing that all throughout the scriptures, whenever someone fully grasps this idea, they give control over to Jesus. That's the first step. Second of all, they made it public. Some of you, you know, you've been thinking about getting baptized for a while. You're like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if the right time is now. You know what they did back then? They heard the news, they believed, and they got in the water in a public place right away. They didn't even have time to go home and change and get their bathing suit on. Today, baptism class is happening. Tony's going to give more information about that. You're like, ah, I was thinking about going out to this place for lunch. What if you just jumped in right now? and said, listen, I want to live my life in response to the guy, the God who, who transformed the world, who so desperately wants to be in relationship with me, and I want to make it public for everyone to know that I have made this decision, and I want to be baptized. For those of us who are here today, and you've already you know, you've made this declaration, you've made it public, this is a great pause to just say, do I actually believe this story, and do I live out of it? Or... Am I a lot like these teenagers who are just living out every ounce on this earth because I'm not sure what's to come, but I'm not sure it excites me? What would it look like for us to live with a living hope like the early Christians? Let me pray for us. Jesus, I love this passage of scripture. I get so excited about what you're doing in the world that if I could have designed heaven, I couldn't have even thought of such a great image to paint for us 
So thank you. Thank you that you know us so intimately. You know what our hearts long for because you created us. And Jesus, I pray that we would be followers of Jesus who live with heaven in mind, fully engaged in this world, loving it because you do and loving the people in it because you do. Would we live in response to this? And now we sing a response to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Just remain standing for a moment. If, if you're new, something we do just before announcements, before we leave, is something called benediction. And it's uh, two old words, benedicte, to speak good words, and it's my privilege to bless you with those today. You ever had someone say to you, follow me? And the gut reaction is, well, where are you going, right? Jesus tells us to follow him, and we call ourselves followers of Jesus. And today what we saw was a glimpse of him saying, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm doing. That's what I want to bless you with as you're following him. Because this week I sense as you're reading the scriptures, as you're praying, as you're talking with people in your home group, there may be things that God is calling you to follow him into that seem terrifying. And he's saying, I know it feels rough, but here's where I'm taking you. May you be blessed with that.